this morning we are still in Revelation chapter 1. I, I'm sure that most of you heard about uh, the untimely death last Sunday of uh, NBA star Kobe Bryant uh, and uh, the untimely death of his young daughter and, and seven others in a helicopter crash out in California. There's been a lot of things said this week, particularly about uh, Kobe Bryant. Uh, you know, they, they talked about his, his raw talent, about some of the struggles that he went through as a, uh, as a young adult, um, about, uh, uh, about his, the dedication that he has had to his family and to his marriage, particularly the last uh, 13 years or so. You've probably heard about the, the championships that he won. He won five NBA titles. He was a tremendous basketball player. Uh, we've heard a lot about his dedication to his family. We've heard a lot about his approach to life, both in his NBA career and his post-NBA career, and, and what uh, many people continue to uh, call the Mamba mentality, because that was his nickname, and that was the name he used to define his approach to life, his approach to his career. Kobe Bryant once said that the Mamba mentality is all about focusing on the process and trusting in the hard work when it matters most. And so his, his desire to, uh, to win championships, his desire to be a good father, uh, his desire to pour into his community, his desire to write books and invest in kids, a desire that eventually led him to, uh, to win an Oscar post-NBA career, and so it's that kind of desire that, that drove him. And, and here's what I was wondering, because I was thinking about that this week. I, I was thinking, you know, there's all this talk about, uh, about guys like Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan and their drive to win and their drive to succeed and to be the best at their sport and in their career. But what I was wondering is what would happen and what would it be like if believers in Christ approached their faith journey the way that guys like Kobe Bryant and, and, and Michael Jordan approached the game of basketball? What would it be like if, if people stopped uh, coming to God with the attitude of, what can you do for me today? And instead uh, came to Him with, uh, with, a, with an attitude of, hey, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to do my best for the cause of Christ and I'm, I'm going to trust him not to give me f some reward for, for something that I have earned but instead I'm going to trust him that he is going to utilize that process to shape me and to develop me into who he wants me to be. I wonder what it would be like if you and I had that kind of approach to our faith journey with Christ. You see, the truth is, is life is not about you searching for the Lord uh, to, uh, uh, to, to scratch your back because you're scratching His, but it's about you surrendering to your created purpose. I think a lot of, a lot of times we think, hey, I'm going to do a little something for God and then He's going to do a little something for me. No, the little something for you that He did is He created you in your mother's womb. He created you with a purpose. He, he, he created you to be saved, to live in redemption. And even though that you had sinned against Him, He sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. And what He has done for you is provided you a Savior. What He has done for you is provided you a breath in your lungs and a beat in your heart in order to give you the opportunity to turn to him. 
You see, it's, it, it's not about what we can do for God. It's really about what he has already done for us. It's about, it, it's about you and I surrendering to our created purpose. Well, as we jump in here to Revelation 1, we're on the island of Patmos in the A.D. 90s. And we see a man named John, John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, different Johns. I say that because you'd be surprised at how many people confuse those two people in Scripture. This is John the Apostle. And we see that he is living in God's purpose. He was surrendered and committed to the journey that God had for him. And, and in that dedication, God reveals to him, unveils a new vision. And so we're going to look uh, some more at that new vision here. And starting in verse, uh, verse 9 and read down to verse 20. We're going to read bits and pieces of this and talk about it as we, as we go along. But before we jump into scripture... Let me pray for us. Father, we, uh, we come to you today humbled by your presence. We are humbled in, in awe of your word. Father, I pray that as we look at your word here this morning, that you would help us to understand this new vision that you have proclaimed to John. Father, a, a new vision that, that you yourself... Uh, Father, you would bring blessing to those who read it and who proclaim it, who protect it. God, I pray that we would be people this morning who would seek to understand it. Father, not only to understand what is in front of us, but understand what it means for us in our journey with you today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in John chapter 1. Let's read the first couple verses here of our passage starting in verse 9 and let's read uh, to verse 10 to start off I John your brother and partner in the tribulation kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus he says I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. The very first thing that we see that describes this vision, we see right here these first couple verses that we read that this vision that came to John was a vision that was brought about during a time of real worship. Notice what John was doing when, when, when Jesus himself comes to John. What was he doing? He was in the Holy Spirit. He was in the Spirit. He was worshiping Jesus on the Lord's day. Real worship. The thing that I think sometimes we miss when we read these passages, especially books like Revelation, where there's so much, so much to understand, so much, so many spiritual things for us to really wrap our minds around. Sometimes we read this and and we forget this was a real person. John was a real person with real problems who really believed in Jesus and sought to really and authentically worship him. You need to understand this is not somebody that, that's in a fairy tale. This is not Little Red Riding Hood. This is not Goldilocks and the Three Bears. This is a real 
person with real struggles that had been through some real difficult times who really still believed in God and really sought to worship Him. You see, John had been through some things at this point in his life. Think about this. At this point in his life, he is the last living member of the original 12 that we know was eventually narrowed down to 11. He's the last living member of the 12 that Jesus had called. He, it had been about 60 years at this point since the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. About 60 years. It's been 30 years at this point since Paul has been executed for his faith. See, the world around John had changed greatly. And here he is living on the island of Patmos uh, in a cave on the cliff of a mountain facing the ocean. There's a picture of it. This is a picture of, of the view that John had from the cave that he was living in. And you see the mountains and, and behind uh, these mountain ranges, if you can see, you can see just barely in the shadow some land back behind all those mountains. He's looking towards what is now modern day Turkey. That's where the city of Ephesus was. And, and, and here's John in, in, uh, in this, this ancient world. He was exiled probably most likely he was in Ephesus when he was exiled. And, and in Ephesus is the home of the temple of Artemis which is if you do your history is known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and its architecture and its structure it was a big big deal but it was also a big big pagan temple with a lot of pagan worship and in fact there was another sort of smaller temple to Artemis there in Patmos where where, where John was living and most of the people worship that false god and the other false gods of the Greeks and the Romans and uh, in fact they, when they look at Christians and they look at people like John, to, to them they would call John an atheist because he only believes in one God where they believe in many. He is living in exile. He's not living in chains. He has freedom to uh, roam about the island and live there, but he is confined to the island and he is surrounded by a pagan culture. He is a real person. He had been through real suffering, yet he still believes. And I think a lot of people read the Bible and they read about the miracles of Moses parting the Red Sea and Joshua drying up the Jordan and, and the plagues of Egypt and Jesus healing the sick and raising the dead and feeding the multitude. And, and, and somewhere in all of that, I think they lose sight of the historical and human reality of the situation. We read in the book of Revelation that this is something that really happened to a real person. And that vision that comes to John is a real vision from a real God. We see again, verse 10, he was in the Spirit. Here is John in prayer thinking about the decrees of the Lord. No church to go to, by the way. He didn't have to go to church. He didn't have to show up and worry about what other people thought. He didn't have to worry about someone calling him and saying, hey, where were you today? You know, and, and although maybe they're just reaching out to him and loving him, he just automatically feels convicted. He, he didn't deal with all that. He didn't have a church to go to. Here he is 
worshiping the Lord in this cave on the Lord's day in the spirit, in prayer, in real worship. This is not empty religion. This is not just showing up. This is not jumping through the hoops. This is heartfelt, authentic, real worship. Friends, let me ask you something. When is the last time that you spent real time with God? Not, not because there was something that you needed to, to teach or preach, but you just open up the Word of God and read and was blessed by that. When's the last time that you were, whether you were uh, in a crowd or, or, uh, or you were by yourself, you just closed your eyes and began to focus on the things of God. Maybe a song was playing on the radio or maybe you were in a room like this where many people were singing and you just closed your eyes and you forgot that anything else was there but you and God. When's the last time you've had that kind of interaction with the Lord? See, some of the most significant, life-shaping moments of my life that led me to where I am today, many of those came either during or as a result of that kind of real worship time with God. Revelation is a vision of real worship, but it's also a vision of a righteous judge. It's a vision of a righteous judge. Let's start here in verse 12. Actually, we'll go ahead and pick up where we left off in verse 10. Uh, at the end of verse 10, he says, And I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it fired, as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. Everything we see in this description of Jesus in Revelation 1 is, uh, uh, gives us the picture of a righteous judge. There's a lot of symbolism here. And it symbolizes the character of Christ. The, the lampstands, we see he saw seven lampstands. The lampstands are symbolic of the churches. He's going to write to seven churches. And in fact, uh, not only do the letters, are they good for those seven churches, but also seven is the number of completion and perfection in the Bible. So these letters are also sent to the church as a whole, as a global church. Um, he, he's, he's got a robe with a golden sash. This is symbolic of dignity and authority. He, uh, he, he comes with his, his head and hair are white like wool. Uh, the, the, the gray hair, the Bible says, is a sign of wisdom. Have you ever noticed in some of the old movies 
or, or in, in your history books, you see people like the, the presidents uh, or, or people when they were going to judge, uh, be a judge and, and they would put on those white wigs. That was symbolic of wisdom. And of course, the white also is symbolic of purity. So it says his head and hair were white like wool, like wool from a purified lamb. It's, it's purity. His eyes like a fiery flame. That tells us that this righteous judge is all-knowing and all-seeing. You can't fool him, okay? He sees right through us. He knows everything about us. He knows the best and the worst of the things that you and I would never say. We see that he has eyes like a fiery flame, but also feet like fine bronze. And that's symbolic of purified persistence. You see, the bronze has been purified in the fire and he will walk through the flame and he is persistent and because he is purified and persistent he will crush and has crushed the head of the enemy it says voice like a sound of cascading waters that's that's easy it's powerful John lived in a little island I think it was about six miles by ten miles surrounded by the ocean with some small mountain ranges and so when it would rain Water would run down and stream down the mountains, but of course, everywhere around him was he was surrounded. He couldn't go very far away from the ocean. He was constantly on the island of Patmos, would have been constantly surrounded by the, uh, the, the, the sound of waves crashing from the ocean. And he understood the power of water and how powerful, how loud it is. And so he says, when I heard that voice, he says it was like cascading waters. He just said it was loud and it was powerful. I didn't hear some wimpy little voice. I heard the voice of a righteous judge. He had, had the seven stars in his hands. He's talking about the church leadership uh, there, see. Uh, you ever heard the song, he's got the whole world in his hands? Well, that's another way of saying he's got the whole church in his hands. His, he, is, he is in control of his church. Um, the double-edged sword is symbolic of the word of God as he spoke the, the, the word of God. He wasn't just speaking, he wasn't just speaking just little words. He wasn't just making conversations. He was proclaiming truth from the very mouth of God. When he spoke, this was from the very mouth of God and of course his face was shining like the sun which is obviously uh, reflective and symbolic of the glory of the risen Christ who sits on the throne. Everything in this description of Christ speaks of his strength, his majesty, his authority, and his righteousness. It's amazing when you think about that. And so this is sort of a, a little introduction. So when we get into, when Jesus begins actually speaking specifically to these seven churches, it's another way of saying, hey, this isn't just a suggestion. I, I'm, I'm not just a consultant for you. I am the authority for you. I, I, you know, all authority, remember what Jesus said right before he ascended? All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. And so when he speaks these things to these churches, uh, they need to listen to what he says because he is the righteous judge. This is not a, 
a weak-kneed, spineless, fearful God that is worried about the opinions of man. Oh, I don't want to say that because I'm afraid it will offend him. Oh, it might make her feel bad. I don't, I'm just really worried about what they're going to think. That is not what is what the, the, the Jesus and the God that is speaking here in Revelation 1 because the truth is, as you can see, God exists to shape the opinion of man, not worry about it. He exists to shape your opinion. Now, I'm not saying that he's not worried about you, and I'm not, I'm not saying that he's not concerned, in a sense, for how you feel, and, he, and, and that, 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 that he's not there to counsel you, but what I am telling you is that his truth is his truth. All this jazz about my truth, her truth, your truth, their truth, that's garbage. That's absolute garbage. There is one truth, and it comes from the mouth of God. And if it offends you, man, just understand, he, he's not quaking in his boots up in heaven. Because he exists to shape your opinion, not to worry about it. He is a God who is in charge. He is a God who speaks with power, majesty, and authority. Let me ask you this. Are your opinions shaped by God? Is it shaped by the judgment of God or the judgment of man? Because when I look around, I see a culture that is shaped by the judgment of man. It's one of the reasons why, why our nation is so divided today. Because, because there was a day when, 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 when everybody understood and everybody had a certain certain common foundation and they may have may, may not have all practiced it the same way but there was a foundation in a general belief that what is the things that we find in this book are true whether we fully understand them correctly or not they're true and what is true is true that was our common uh, our, our common foundation it's interesting when you go back to the 1960s and 70s uh, in the 40s and 50s and all that stuff and you watch some of the old presidential debates or you read transcripts from, from, from days before that of presidential debates man, you would see, they would say over and over again well, we agree on that, we agree on that, we agree on that and it wasn't that they disagreed on the things that needed to be done uh, or the reason that they needed to be done but more often than that where their, where their disagreement was was, uh, was how to get those things done but we live in a culture today where, where, where some people think you ought to do it way, you know, uh, do it like this and, and there's a great chasm between doing it like this and doing it like that like the other folks say and there's everything in between one of the reasons is because we live in a world that's shaped by the judgments of man and not the judgments of God. Let your opinions, let your worldview, the way that you see the world, be shaped through the judgments of God. Some of you have heard of a Christian rapper named Lecrae. I, I, I had the opportunity to see Lecrae perform several times and got to hear him speak a couple times. And, and I, I saw this quote that's really stuck to me. He says that success isn't what you've done compared to others. Success is what you've done compared to what you were made to do. Because, you see, if, if you live by the judgment 
of man, then you're always comparing yourself to others. What does the world say? How's the world view me? But if you are living by the judgments of God, you're saying, this is what God has created me to do, and so I'm doing what I am supposed to do. This is, this is my created purpose. It's not about comparing yourself to others. It's comparing yourself to your purpose. Listen, your purpose is to glorify God. You exist to glorify God. You exist to serve Him. You exist to share the gospel. You exist to be a disciple and to make disciples. You, you exist to, uh, uh, to, to love God and love others. You exist to pursue the disciplines of your faith. You exist to be obedient to the instructions of our righteous judge. Now, how does that work out in your individual life? Listen, that, that may take a lot of different roads in your life. But you need to make sure that you're, you're navigating those roads through the map and the navigation of His Word. This is a vision of real worship, of a righteous judge, and also it is a vision of recording the truth. It's a record of truth. Don't you skip down here to verses 19 and 20. We'll, we'll come back to a couple of these. But look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus says to John, Therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. The secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven Churches. He says, therefore, write what you have seen, write what is, and write what will take place. You see, John is to be a recorder of the truth. He, he, he tells John, write what you have seen. Listen, what have you seen God do in your life? What have you seen God do? And here's another question, how often... Do you share about what you have seen God do with others? Because here's, here's what I want, I want to tell you. The week that the tragedy of Kobe Bryant happened, this day today on Super Bowl Sunday, it, it gets us thinking a lot about sports. If you can talk at ease about what your favorite athletes have done, or you can talk at ease about your favorite movies or TV shows or music that your favorite celebrities have made. If you can talk at ease about those things, and yet you struggle to recall something that, God, that you have seen God do in your life, if you've been a believer very long, friend, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Because if you've been a believer very long, you've seen God move. If you're a believer in Christ, you've seen him move at least once because he saved you. That's a miracle. God saved me from my sins. That's the first miracle that you and I will experience personally. But man, as you walk in Christ, you're going to see him move. You're going to see him answer prayers. You're going to see him do things that you didn't expect that he would do. You're going to see him use people and, 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 and work in people and heal relationships and heal people ways that you never could have Imagine your life is to be a record of truth. He said to John, record these things. Record them. See, your life is to be a testimony of the love and power of Jesus. And this vision is a vision of real worship. It's a vision of a 
righteous judge. It's a, it's a record of truth or a vision of recording the truth. And then it's another vision of a rapid response. Look back up in verse 17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. <laughs> when I saw him, I heard his voice. He said, I was worshiping, man, I was in the spirit. I was praying, man, I was in the word. I was meditating on God's word. And suddenly, this, this voice, this powerful voice, like a locomotive, you know, coming down right beside me, like, like cascading waters, the roar of the waterfall. He says, and I turned and I saw him, and instantly he recognizes who Jesus is. And instantly, rapidly, he drops to his feet to worship him. When Jesus spoke, John responded rapidly. You ever wondered why John responded so intensely and so quickly? You ever wondered that? I mean, I hope that when God, if God were to show up and speak to us in person like that, that you and I would instantly recognize him and fall at his feet. I just think about that. John, here's, here's why John did it so quickly. Because John knew the voice of Christ. He knew the voice of Jesus. John the Apostle. Scholars tell us were most, was most likely, he, and, he, and, uh, he and, and his brother James were most likely first cousins of Jesus and Jesus' brother James. Uh, scripture seems to indicate that John's mother, the wife of Zebedee, was the sister of Mary. Now, again, don't confuse this with John the Baptist, who would have been at least a third cousin to Jesus. Um, but John the Apostle likely knew him all of his life, spent time with him. The, the Bible says and, and Scripture shows us that he spent time with Jesus as one of his 12 disciples. In fact, John was most probably, as far as we can tell in Scripture, the only one of the 12 who was there on Calvary when Jesus was crucified. Now, now the other disciples were around, and, and some of them watched from afar, but John was close enough that he could hear Jesus speak the words when Jesus says, I want you to take care of Mary like she's your own mother, okay? That's essentially what he says, behold, uh, behold your mother, uh, woman, behold your son. He is saying, I want you to take care of my mother like she was your own. This is how close he was to the cross. He was there, the only one of the 11, the only one left of the 11 who was there when Jesus ascended into heaven. 60 years later, he heard that voice. And he had not forgotten it. He instantly, instantly knew who it was. Because he knew the voice of God. Listen to me. A lot of people do not respond to the voice of God because they don't know what it sounds like. A lot of you wouldn't know when God is leading you because you don't, you don't spend time listening to him. You don't spend time hanging out with him. You, you, you don't spend time in, in real worship of him. So a lot of us wouldn't, wouldn't know because we don't know what he sounds like. Listen, the only communication that you can have with God with any assurance 
is always going to be from his word. Because the Holy Spirit will speak to you. Don't get me wrong. The Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you and counsel you. But sometimes it's difficult to distinguish between what the Holy Spirit is telling me to do and what my emotions are telling me to do. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish between, hey, I am just afraid versus this is not spiritually wise. And the only way that you can know with any assurance what the counsel of God is, is always cross-reference it with the Word of God. you got to learn to distinguish the voice of God. This was, a, this was a vision of a rapid response, and the last thing is a vision of a reassuring Savior. Look at what Jesus says to him. John falls to him in worship, in fear, in reverence, because he knew it was God speaking with power and authority. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I'll hold the keys of death and Hades. You see, uh, we have a God who will reassure us. When you spend time with him, man, you're going to hear, you're going to hear the voice of God convicting you. You're going to hear the voice of God leading you. You're going to hear the voice of God giving you wisdom. But he will also give you assurance. He will reassure you. You don't have to be afraid of him. Is he a righteous judge? Absolutely. Will he judge sin? Yeah, he will. But don't forget, if you are in Christ, if you've come to to him through faith in his son your sins are forgiven forevermore you have no reason to fear for God is with you his rod and his staff will protect you and he will guide you and he is a, 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 a savior that will reassure us of his love and his power with all the coverage this week on the Kobe Bryant thing, one thing stood out to me uh, that before he got on that helicopter to go to that game, that Sunday morning, he and his daughter got up early and were at their church at 7 a.m. for an early mass gathering. He's, they said that he sat back in the back like he normally did in order not to distract anyone from the worship of Christ. He took communion. He prayed. And although I don't think I've ever heard Kobe Bryant talk about his faith publicly, and maybe he has, I don't know, but I want to think that his passion for his family these last 12 or 13 years, his passion for his marriage and his children, was birthed from his relationship and his communion with God. What would it be like if you and I approached our faith the way these great athletes approach their game. What would God do in us and through us if we were that committed to him? Let's pray.